Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 281st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Duncan Kelm. Duncan is a managing partner for Aeropoint Wealth Management, a hybrid advisory firm based in Santa Rosa, California, that oversees $163 million of assets under management for 142 client households. What's unique about Duncan, though, is how he leverages owning and operating his own tax firm, in addition to his advisory firm, to offer more integrated tax planning and wealth management services to his small business owner clientele. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Duncan leverages tax expertise in years as a business consultant to build his own tax firm and offer that full suite of tax and financial planning to his clients. How Duncan utilizes his tax business as well as local CPAs to generate leads for prospective wealth management clients. And how Duncan created what he calls character insurance with his clients to help them define who they are and document their ethos for future generations when they're no longer around. We also talk about how Duncan fought to become a more knowledgeable person and prove his worth after transitioning from consulting into an entry-level position at a wirehouse. How Duncan decided to partner with his father to build their own independent firm after he became frustrated with the lack of freedom and opportunities at the wirehouse. And how Duncan struggled to accept becoming his father's successor as he tried to balance building a career of his own and taking advantage of the partnership opportunity in front of him. And be certain to listen to the end where Duncan shares how he drew upon the lessons and mental toughness he learned during his years as an Olympic rugby player to help him through the difficult transition to owning his own firm. How even though Duncan thoroughly enjoyed his prior consulting work, he changed his career paths to gain more independence and spend more time with his family. And how Duncan lives a philosophy of focusing more on the effort he puts towards achieving life goals rather than just the outcome, which usually helps it turn out favorably in the end anyways. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Duncan Kelm. Welcome, Duncan Kelm, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you joining us today. And, and I'm looking forward to talking a bit about the, the dynamics of, of getting deeper and deeper into the, into the tax planning world. In, in the advisory business. I, I feel like this has just been a, a slow and steady, but very strong trend in, in our advisor space that, you know, like we had all this pressure over the past 10 years of, of the robo-advisors, which the industry tried to make the case like this is fee compression and we're going to have to bring all of our fees down. And, and in practice, like there's basically been no fee compression uh, yeah. measurable anywhere in the advisor space. <laughs> but the pressure was on to say like, well, if you're not going to trim your fees, then you you better do you better do enough to justify your fees. And and I feel like it has led to this sort of value add pressure. Like what else are we going to do to justify our fees? What else are we going to do to justify our fees? What else are we going to do? And for so many firms that's moved in the direction of, well, well, let's do some tax planning or tax work or outright tax preparation. Cause you know, like everybody's got to spend money to get their taxes done. I can point to a hard dollar expense and say, I did that for you. And and no one really likes paying taxes. So being able to point like, I saved you this many dollars in tax savings is a, 
a super concrete way to say, here's some value I brought to the table. And I know you've lived some of this journey in doing tax planning work for clients, expanding into tax preparation for clients, uh, you know, getting your enrolled agents, so you can go down that road. And so just I, excited to talk about these dynamics of like, you know, it, how valuable is it to do tax planning? What do we really do? Like, where do you draw the line of, okay, this is enough value beyond this. Like I'm just doing busy work. I don't really want to do and how tax evolves when you add it into your advisory firm. So in my opinion, I think tax planning and financial services marry up perfectly to offering what I would consider a full suite financial planning service. So you hit on a few of those topics, but I think they're really worth mentioning. First of all, if somebody's willing to pay a financial advisor, they're very likely not doing their tax return on a do-it-yourself mm. tax service. They probably have a tax advisor in some capacity. It's a good point. Just if you're if you're delegating enough to delegate like portfolios and wealth management and just the the cost that does entail, like you're probably not trying to save the last few bucks with TurboTax. I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions, but as general rule, like if you're delegating your portfolio, you probably delegate your taxes. Exactly. Well, and if you think about the type of clientele that generally financial service advisors want, high net worth, complicated situations, trusts, small businesses, multiple businesses, multi-generational estate planning, all of that hits emphatically on very specific parts of the tax code. So with us, and what we've done or, and what I have tried to create with my tax business, which we keep them separate and we can get into kind of why in a little bit, we really focus on small business owners. That's the part of the tax code that, you know, I would say I am knowledgeable in, certainly not an expert. Anybody who proclaims to be an expert in tax, in my opinion, is very likely full of it. But it it, it marries up so well because it's an introduction to the type of folks that you want to work with on the other side of your business. You can demonstrate value. It's quantifiable value, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever upset when you say, hey, did you know about XYZ? We've got you know a few more months in the year. If we were to do this, it's probably going to save you eight to $9,000 in taxes. No, nah, we probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> right? Yeah, yes. Said no one ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's to me it's an easy sell. And then you've delivered value, you've showed a knowledge competency, and then if you're opening the relationship with tax, which again, we'll get into this, but that's kind of where a lot of our new business has been generated from, it expands and you're giving opportunities to move beyond that, and whether that's full suite financial planning, assets under management, discretionary investing, all these things, you kind of get a bite at the apple usually if you do a good job on the tax planning side. So how is this translated for you in 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 practice for just how far down this road you go? Because I, I I know the challenges for a lot of firms. I I, I sort of think of this on a on a I know a spectrum. So, you know, at the one end, just like, you know, we don't get into tax stuff. We don't do that here. The the next is, as I'm giving you advice in other areas, there are at least some tax ramifications to them. And I try to give some advice in those areas. Like we're contributing to retirement accounts. So we'll talk about Roth versus traditional and we're managing your portfolio. So we'll talk about capital loss harvesting. The the next stage is to be sort of a more proactive tax planning. Like, 
I'm going to I'm going to buy holista plan and I'm going to you know plug in client tax returns and I'm going to try to really identify proactive tax planning opportunities. So I got I got to do some additional work. I probably have an additional client meeting, but hopefully I have opportunities to demonstrate additional value. And then you can go even further out in the spectrum of we'll just do your whole tax return. Like we're just we'll do the return and then we'll have all your tax information since we did the return and we're just going to package all of the tax planning into the fact that we're doing the tax preparation work. And so I feel like a lot of firms, you know, we we have this interest in doing more taxes, but like where you draw the line on that spectrum is 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 difficult, or everyone seems to have their own opinion about where you should draw that line. So, how how far down the spectrum have you have you gone in in this evolution? I think to everybody, it's going to be different, right? For some people, tax is the bane of their existence. Thinking about tax or the tax code is nothing they ever want to dream about. So they're going to be on that spectrum that says, you know, ask your tax advisor. Right? We're on the complete other side of the spectrum. So we do tax returns for clients. Some of them happen to be wealth management clients. We also just have returns that we do for purely tax clients. So I really like that third iteration that you mentioned. So you had said refer, kind of talking about retirement contributions, tax loss harvesting being phase two. Phase three, the planning piece that you had mentioned where Holista plans involved running tax projections. To me, that's where the eyes light up of the clients. When I'm sitting in a meeting and we're talking through, well, you could you could contribute some low basis stock to a donor advised fund, and this will marry up nicely with the fact that we're doing charitable distributions from your IRA, and now we can drop your income below the 150 threshold, and you're going to get a stimulus check. Well, they they start to get a little excited by that. It feels like they're winning a game, so to speak. A lot of this work takes specific action, though. And oftentimes, I've run into a couple different hurdles along the way. It sounds great in practice. Oh, make these recommendations. Either go in and implement it yourself with a tax return or just tell your tax professional to go do it for you. In reality, the client will generally mess it up or Mm -hmm. the telephone game will come and they won't be able to explain it quite clearly. CPAs and tax professionals have different views on different areas of the code. They may not totally agree or be willing to put their license on something like 280A Augusta rule or something along those lines. So where we moved kind of to the full spectrum of, okay, well, we're going to do tax returns as well and we've tried to solve for that to the best of our ability, was we came up with these planning strategies and oftentimes we'd follow up in the new year with kind of our kickoff meetings and some or all of them in some instances weren't even implemented. So give us more context for this, I guess. So how, because first just like, talk to us about the size of the firm overall of like you uh, clients or assets or however you measure. And then like how many are actually engaged with tax services as you're, as you're doing tax preparation for clients? So on the investment side, that's certainly a bigger business that we've had. We have currently 163 million under management and does, you know, about the revenue you would expect from an AUM type business of that size. And and how many clients is that? 142 households. Okay. Okay. So we're close to the about a million dollars per household. Obviously there's outliers there, but that's generally 
on okay. average where we would land. The tax planning side of piece is maybe 15 to 20% of that revenue. Tax credit work is actually just because of certain tax credits that are available right now on par, if not greater than the wealth management currently. That'll change when some of these stimulus things expire, et cetera. But there's a lot of revenue on the tax credit filing side of things. And then actual tax prep, kind of treat it like milk in a grocery store. And it's a cost of doing business. If we want to implement some of these complicated or strategic tax plans, we probably need to be making sure that we're the ones doing the return and filing the return. And so how many returns are you are you preparing in practice? Like are you are, are you doing 142 returns for 142 households? Uh, uh, fewer, more because you've got tax only clients that aren't doing wealth management? Like how 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 far have you gone down the 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 tax preparation rabbit hole as it were? Good question. And I think you might get the perception based on how I just described it as milk in a grocery store. If you're not making big margins on it, maybe you don't lean into it as heavily. We probably do about 55 returns and have close to 80 tax planning clients probably. And in some capacities, because, you know, I have both these companies and can kind of move my wages and time around between them, I can offer the tax planning piece as a service to the financial planning side that is very in-depth, diving into prior tax returns, looking for tax credits, that sort of thing, and kind of bake it in if we're going to be compensated well enough on the wealth management side. So how like what determines who you're doing returns for versus not if you've got you know 50 something returns but a, a 142 households is it just whoever wants it who doesn't already have an existing CPA is it like we try to do it for our our, our top clients as a as an additional service like how have you targeted who who's getting returns We generally do not advertise that we want to be doing the tax prep work so if they ask us We say, yes, we will, and we can. We try and offer to at least our top 50 households ongoing tax planning service and just a resource that they can either talk to myself or um, the CPA who works for my tax firm whenever they have a tax question, if they want to speak to us and perhaps not their CPA who does their tax filing. We aim to market it as, hey, we're an additional resource. We have knowledge in the area, certain areas of the tax code. It helps that the things we specialize in are small business and the vast majority of our clients are small business owners or previously were small business owners. But it's actually not something that we're out banging on the door telling, hey, leave your CPA, come with us, let us take this over. We have the conversations. We talk through, hey, have you thought of X? Have you thought of this, this, and this? as we do our meetings and our planning. And from there, if they bring up, well, you know, my person is thinking about retiring or would you ever consider just doing it? You have these ideas and I don't get them from my CPA or my enrolled agent or tax planner. That's when we move forward and try and engage. It's a tight dance to walk because in some instances, we have some really good referral sources that have been CPAs that Mm. have referred business to my partner for a very long time. And now it's, well, oh, you're doing this also? Okay. That's one of the challenges 
that we've definitely had to kind of work through over the past couple of years. Actually, as an aside, we're in Northern California. We had some pretty bad fires up here over the last few years, a lot of evacuations. And actually in my home city, a lot of houses burned. I wrote a book on the taxation of the PG&E Fire Victim Trust. So basically, I just wanted to do it for the community. It was also, you know, okay, this could be some marketing on the tax side. And I wrote, had it edited professionally through, you know, consulting Upwork and Fiverr and those things, book cover, all that. And I sent it out kind of as a resource, kind of as a marketing tool. It actually can still be downloaded on my website for free. I realized I spent all this time, I was trying to attract clients that I had no interest in. They wanted low hourly tax work one time. They had a quick question. They were folks who didn't build wealth long-term day by day, either through a business or you know, being highly compensated. Mm. They were granted a windfall and a lot like a lottery. They just weren't the people that we wanted to attract and build our company around. It was a fun thing to do. It was something I'm happy I did and proud to have kind of written that for my community. But that's an example of, ooh, this is going to drive a lot of tax business. And then it was, screech the brakes. Um, And I actually have a thousand of these books sitting in the room next to me that I never sent out to a lot of people. Because- it was people were getting large dollar amount windfalls from the from the fire victim trust, but they weren't necessarily people who had the the mentality that we of the folks that we want to work with. Yeah, it's what you say when you're interviewing almost anybody. Find your niche, find what you're good mm-hmm. at, and run with it. Right. And we were moving well outside of our niche of small business owners, kind of the backbone of America. Something we really love being independent because we feel we're a part of that. And it was folks that never had a complicated tax return before, but here, here's $2 million. And it's broken into all these various categories of basis of your home and loss of wages and disability and emotional distress, all taxed differently. And they're beating me up because I wanted to charge for my time to have a conversation. And I just, enough of that, (laughs) after four or five times of that, I started to really dial back the marketing and kind of go, okay, well, maybe this didn't work. Interesting. So, well, I guess like double-edged sword. I mean, you you wrote it because there were people who were getting large dollar amounts, which in theory should be good, good prospects. It worked, air quotes, like it worked because you got to start interacting with some of them and there were dollars out there, but then found these aren't actually the people I enjoy working with. Pretty much. And like, if you've been around any of these trust settlements before, they take years to settle. This was funded in 2020 with $13 billion. A lot of that is in Sonoma County, which is where I am. So a lot of wealth is coming into this area. The problem is the folks that we would want to be working with tend to already either have a tax advisor, a financial advisor. They're already covered. And the folks that really didn't want to be attracting, ultimately, they were the ones that download the book Yeah, quite often. And actually, I got a little perturbed because I wrote this to try and, you know, for the community, hey, this is a resource, free, take it. And yeah, it's a marketing tool as well. 
but the amount of other tax professionals and attorneys that downloaded it, I mean, actually today, I think I had two CPAs download this book off my website because I get an alert when it happens. It just kind of irks me a little bit that, you know, uh, another professional is just kind of grabbing information and leveraging it to charge their clients. So then help us understand just where you are on this, the tax spectrum now, that it it sounds like you're doing the returns. You have a CPA on staff who's doing the returns, but you're maybe not in love with doing the returns because you'd rather do the tax strategy work, but kind of like the milk at the grocery store, there's sort of an expectation that it's there. So you're you're into the tax returns after all. Like, how do you see this playing out going forward? Like, where, where are you, where are you hoping to put the balance of it in the future? I think a lot of problems ultimately can be solved with cash flow and money, quite frankly. So my vision of where this would go is ultimately on both sides of the investment piece. That'd be secondary. Tax would be first. And it also opens up massive doors to wealth management. We've brought in significant amounts of money because we had the door open to us either with a business sale or a consult that they were looking for, you know, quote unquote, a specialist on the tax side. And my name was brought up somehow, sat down with them, and that resulted in millions of dollars coming in the door. So you actually have clients that are are coming for tax first and getting referred over to the wealth management business, as opposed to we're doing tax work for our existing wealth management clients. Exactly. It's a lead-based system that is fantastic if you can put up with the threshold of wanting or actually paying for somebody else to do the returns. And that's ultimately the path that you went. I guess you 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 were or you are an EA that was doing them but said, okay, I gotta hire someone to do them now instead. Yeah. At the end of the day, you can only do so much and there's only so many hours in the day. And right. my priorities are my children, my wife, my family first. Business is fantastic and fun and I'm exhilarated to be working for myself every day. And I I like working hard. It's fun for me to work hard when I feel as if I'm getting the benefit and I'm seeing the growth firsthand. At the same time, if it's something that you truly don't really enjoy, either solve for it or get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And how do you price this? Like, are you charging separately for tax prep? Are you charging separately for tax planning? Is it like bundled into clients of a certain size? Like, how does, the, how does the revenue side of all this tax work work? It depends on the level of effort or scope of the engagement. If we're meeting with a business owner who's interested in kind of this tax planning component and tax planning piece, there's going to be a set retainer similar to an AUM fee that's built around quarterly tax planning. Hey, we're going to review your P&Ls as we close the books for the quarter. We're going to see where you are on your estimates. And then we're going to be looking at doing X, Y, Z. Maybe your wife has thought about, or your husband, not, not to be sexist there in any way, but your husband has thought about becoming a real estate agent. Well, you have five properties. Can I show you the benefits of him becoming a real estate agent in the next six months? Let's look into this and then starting to implement that. So we have people that are higher touch, similarly to financial planning or our high AUM investment clients, 
that are on a tax planning subscription service. And then it's hourly ad hoc work, either myself, my CPA that works on my tax business, will handle tax prep, tax forecasting, tax projections. We've been getting a decent amount of folks with equity-based comp from the Bay Area. We're a little north of the Bay, about 60 miles, who have a lot of questions about, well, what do I do with these ISOs I executed or might execute and RSUs and non-qualified stock options, et cetera. We tend to do the hourly work there, but again, I'm realizing more and more just doing it to make you know a decent hourly rate, if it's not resulting in business in other capacities or the people that we specialize in helping, small business owners, it's probably better in the future just to refer them or send them another direction. And so how do you, I mean, do you have plans of how you get more of the tax clients that you that you want since it sounds like you you are getting a good amount of 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 folks that are tax first maybe wealth management second as opposed to just doing tax work for existing wealth management clients yeah and i think i'm probably portraying it in a light that's a little gray we're getting plenty of business opportunities through the tax planning piece it's the perfect type of people that we're looking for Small business owners, we've done well for a few local small business owners who then are saying, oh, your, your person didn't do X. Well, maybe my person gave me these things and it's looking like it's going to save me on some taxes. I think the biggest selling point is forward tax planning versus retroactive tax prep work. And that's really when the eyes light up of these clients and business owners is when we're sitting there going, okay, well, if we go forward and do X, Y, Z, this means ballpark $20,000 in savings. Are you on board? They get excited about that. It becomes easier to sell the next stage of services. And we're actually not really pushy on the services. I, I have my own sales style that you know I don't think would work if I wasn't in the situation I was coming into this business which joining a partner and becoming a succession plan of partner and father, actually. It's a way to sell that my sales strategy to win business and clients is blow the value out of the water to if they're comparing me to anybody else or they're comparing our firm to anybody else. It's, it's apples to pineapples, so to speak. So then help us understand just overall like what what you guys are doing at this point for for clients that you're serving. You know, you you've you've said overall you you've tried to have a focus with small business owners. Obviously you're getting a lot into tax planning and and tax strategy opportunities with with business owners, but ultimately it sounds like the primary anchor is is wealth management financial planning firm. So how, just how does this work in in practice? I mean, when a when a small business owner says, you know, heard about the firm, interested in signing up and working with with you, Duncan, like, what do you do for small business <laughs> owner clients? The first process is downloading the situation, and sometimes that can take two to three meetings. Usually, asking for a lot of documentation. And what we do is try and get a picture of where is this person, what do they have in terms of assets and cash flow being generated. And what's their objective? Once we have an understanding of that, that tends to transition into a financial planning engagement 
where we do a deep dive and we like to do a single page visual that tries to lay out all their assets and lays out the cash flow and tries to get them to understand here's what needs to be doing what. I call it setting the lineup of a baseball field, right? And when we download this information from these clients, they may have seven insurance policies and they've never really thought about it because their next door neighbor and friend works for one of the insurance firms. But when you translate it to a metaphor that says, okay, well, first of all, if we do X, Y, Z, this is going to create tax savings. Second of all, we're playing with no pitchers and catcher right now. We've got a couple infielders in the outfield stacked. We got to revamp this and set the lineup. When you start speaking in analogies that they can kind of understand, that's, again, when we see the most value for these specific type of clients. So we might engage with them on the tax planning piece that rolls into asset management, financial structuring of accounts, insurance review, pretty much anything that has a dollar and a sign in front of it, reviewing it. And then from there, once we have an objective and a driving point, we start to leverage some of the industry software that's well used as a way to monitor, control, and advise on how to move from eight outfielders and set that lineup in a way that's designed to diversify and ultimately try and win the game. So walk me through this just a little bit more step-by-step. Step. Like I'm just trying to visualize what what comes when. So first meeting, I guess, is, is just broadly like tell us about yourself and 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 let's get to know you is is that like are they are they already a client are they still a prospect do they bring information to the meeting or, or like bring paperwork to the meeting or are you are you just talking to them to get to know them like where are we in the process sure so on the clients that are already existing wealth management clients we already have access to all their tax returns it's kind of a standard procedure that we either have their CPAs or we have it because we're doing it. And that would be the start of an engagement. One, if we're meeting with a new prospect, we're going to have them explain why they're in the room. What are they looking for? What are they looking to obtain? We know where either it was a referral or they heard one of our advertisements or marketing. And we know where they're coming from, but we don't know what the objective is. Once we have that objective, we start walking them through our process. And really what your question is, is, well, what's your process? The process starts by understanding what they're after and downloading everything they have. So if it's got a dollar sign in front of it, we want to take a look at it. Obviously, we are you know, marketing ourselves as kind of specializing on the tax side of things. And that's one of our taglines. You know, we are focused on risk-adjusted after-tax return. So trying to market that as, hey, that's a benchmark that we need to be focused on. Once we download all that information, we move it into our planning software. We use, we use eMoney, really like some of the services they have and where they fall short on a few items we pick up with other software like Plan and actually my tax prep software. So we download all the information, we get it into the software, we start identifying where there are problems or things that we need to address either on the tax side, the wealth management side. From there, we define a clear set of objectives by the client. 
and we explain the deliverables they're going to receive. One of the first deliverables comes from the tax side of the business, and that is me doing a deep dive into their last two tax returns. And based on what they have in their current tax year plus the last few tax years, I present them 15 to 30 different tax considerations slash strategies that we might want to look into. We meet for two to three hours. We go through them in pretty specific detail, and we tag the ones that they want to pursue further. If they have a CPA they're engaging with, we move and start engaging with them, explaining what we're doing and how we're doing it. Interesting. So let me just pause you there and and understand this. So initial meeting, why are they in the room? Right. Like I, you know, I know you were a referral, but like, why are you actually here? Like what's going on? You got, you got something that made you ask for that referral and, and come in. So you're getting to know them, getting initial information. Are are they bringing like financial documents with them to the meeting or are you like scribbling down notes as you have the conversation of like what dollars are where and what they've got? No, actually, I'm a big fan of digital as often as possible. And because we use e-money, we try and use it as an aggregator. First meeting to us is not about what assets do you have, where are they invested, let's ACAT them over right away. We are a slow sales process that actually from start of an engagement on planning until we finally potentially move assets over is probably a month and a half process with four meetings to five meetings in between to make sure we feel comfortable that we can handle and have a great understanding of their situation. And they are comfortable with our process and how we think and how we will be communicating with them in an ongoing and go forward basis. So how do accounts then get linked up? Like, after the first meeting, you like send them a, a an invite and onboarding to eMoney, or is there a second meeting where you walk them through it? Like, how, just how do you how do you start actually getting numbers in then? Yeah, it depends on the level of sophistication of the client. If computers are challenging, and you probably uh-huh. know that's a little age discriminating, but we're going to meet. Comes with up them. for some clients. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're going to meet with them. And we will work with them to either enter it via statements manually, although we prefer to try and link if they do have the ability to get into these accounts. If they are willing to, we set them up with a portal. We use Loom. I don't know if you're familiar with that software. Love it. We record, hey, here's the portal. Here's the dashboard. Want to call your attention here. Let me show you how you're going to link these accounts. When you have time, go in. I'll get a notification that you've gone in and linked. If you have any documents that can't be linked, a trust or a state plan you want us to review, insurance products, here's the share drive that's encrypted and secure. Please drop them in there. We'll get an alert. We'll take a look and we'll start to digest and download and integrate that into the financial plan as we progress. Interesting. So is it literally a Loom video for every every new client? Like, you know, dear Jenny, so excited to be getting going with you. Here's the portal on how to do it. Or or have you made like the the standard, like the standard e-money intro video and you just get to send the same the same thing to every new client who's coming on board? Everything's custom. And okay. that's part of the reason we probably only have 142 households. And we'll probably, unless we grow in our our advisory practice or bring on more staff, we'll never go above 200. 
because the level of personalization is probably the reason that they were referred if they were referred in that meeting. So everything is custom. And when we're selling the planning piece, it really truly is, hey, we're going to look at everything you have and offer offer custom advice. You're not going to be getting just templated planning advice. So that takes time. That's actually one of the areas, again, that's constraints for us because if my partner and I are the two folks that can really do that type of work, unless we spend a lot of time to train or get our staff up to speed on it, we continue to get pulled into these type of situations and it's an ever-perpetuating cycle. So you've done the initial meeting. After the first meeting, they get the like the Loom video on how to start linking up their accounts, assuming we've determined they're tech savvy enough to be able to handle the, <laughs> the Loom video to, to link up their accounts. So are, are tax returns coming in as part of that as well? Like you're asking them to upload tax returns into the eMoney vault as a part of the, the let's get you linked up and get your data uploaded? Exactly right. Yep. And we have systems that alert us and then our team will let us know that it's there, usually integrated into Holistaplan. That's where we'll start to do some projections. Generally, I'll incorporate it into my tax software as well because I can run specific scenarios depending on what's needed, and I like having it in there. And, and what is your tax software? ProConnect into it. Okay. And I chose it mainly because it's a cloud-based service. Intuit does a lot of good things. It's probably not the absolute most robust tax software out there, but it allows for virtual and remote collaboration. It allows for DocuSign and a lot of other things that we try and do to really digitize and move away from, hey, here's all my paper statements and what I did this year. I'll talk to you April 10th so I can sign my tax documents. But I mean, this this is your tax prep software if they're actually going to become a, a, a preparation client, or are you using this for planning alongside Holista Plan as well? Yeah, I use it as planning too. So the way that the service works, because I'm you know a tax firm and have purchased a certain number of returns each year, you can actually create returns. And as long as you don't file them, doesn't count against your number. So I'm able to kind of run scenarios that maybe Holistaplan can't work through. You can do like more detail, basically like detailed pro forma tax returns. I mean, you don't hit the file button, you're not filing for them, but just you can do the whole return. So what what gets done that way versus using Holistaplan? Holista plan's really good. You know, when you, we first started talking about, you know, what phase are you in? Phase three, Holista plan, I think, knocks it out of the park. So if you're talking about some unique strategies or talking about maybe a cash balance plan and want to demonstrate what that would do or Roth conversions and marrying it up next to the IRMA bracket and maximizing mm-hmm. that, that's great. When you're talking about exercising ISOs and AMT, I know they're building out some of these features, but it doesn't quite do probably what's needed to be able to capture. Yeah, when you really want to model how that ripples all the way across the return. Yep, exactly right. So for 
what I would say the more advanced pieces, and generally that's the complex situation, what a high net worth person probably has, we get it in there. We may not use ProConnect tax software. If Plan satisfies what we need it to do, then great. If we need to go further, then we have the return already loaded in there. We can forecast based on last year's return. We can run estimates based on the business doing better. And, you know, hey, you know you're underpaying right now. Yeah, you're not going to owe a penalty, but how much tax do you want to owe or be surprised with in April, right? So you get all the tax information because they're uploading into e-money. You can drop in a whole list of plan. If they've got messier stuff, you can run proformas in, in ProConnect. So I take it then like you're, you're doing all that analysis. That's what builds you up to, I'm going to come up with 15 to 30 plus different tax considerations and strategies, write them out into a deliverable. And that's what goes in the next meeting is, let me start showing you all the different tax planning opportunities that we see on the table for you, Mr. and Mrs. Client. Yes. Or Mr. and Mrs. Prospect. Yes. Not on yet. So the way I write the deliverable is if they chose to disengage after the planning piece, which we charge for, by the way, and pretty adamant about charging for planning. If they choose to disengage, at least they have a deliverable that cites, okay, well, this is kind of what this strategy is referenced as. These are the parts of the tax code that it impacts. Here's theoretically how it would work to a layman. And then underneath it, here's how it works if you are just going to hand this to your CPA or tax professional and say, I want to execute this. So it's a it's a big document, you know, again, specializing in small business, you kind of see some repeat situations. But I guess just can you give us some examples? I mean, just what kinds of things are you getting into or how deep are you getting into tax planning ideas? Pretty deep. Sure. I mean, the simplest one that marries up extremely well with wealth management is cash balance pension plan for an older small business owner. They haven't heard about it. They're not aware that it exists. And depending on the actuaries you work with, and we have a couple that we really trust and like in the area, they're able to wait significant uh, portion to their benefit, stands up against ERISA, and all of a sudden they're putting $300,000 into their cash balance. Their taxes have been reduced dramatically. They're pretty ecstatic, and we're the ones managing the cash balance plan. So that, right. that that's a nice one. Buy sell agreements are another area that you know we kind of dive into and have attorneys that we trust locally that we know can craft good ones. Well, if they're going to be funded by insurance, we're going to be the ones to pick out those insurance products and kind of deliver that and make sure that. Those, you have to be careful that you don't take the deductions or you forego, you forego the tax benefits of either disability or life along the way. Right. So crafting that. Other ones that you know become a little more nuanced, moving your teenager and putting them on payroll, mm. running a scenario where your wife becomes engaged in the practice because she's already making above the social security limit at her other job. And she's able to then contribute to the cash balance plan as well, in addition to her 401k. Things like that. And then you couple, I mean, Roth conversions are going to be in almost every one of the tax strategies I put in front of somebody explaining how those work and 
how we can be opportunistic there, tax loss harvesting. So the, that first and second level that you kind of alluded to as well, that okay. that's always going to be in there. Right. But that, but a lot of that is, the, as you noted, the really small business specific stuff of like, here, here's how you put your teenager on the payroll. Here's how you put your spouse on the payroll. Here, you know, you're putting your teenager on because you want to do a Roth contribution. You're putting your spouse on because you're going to jam in six figures with the cash balance plan that's expanding to her, and just all all the unique stuff you get to start doing in the business owner environment. Yeah, they're an S corp owner, so Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We have to have an accountability plan. So helping them understand what the accountability plan because they've been told that. Home office deduction is gone. Well, right. not exactly true, right? I love your blog right. on this piece. I've actually, I've actually used it as I was crafting some of this language Excellent. as I'm presenting. Yeah, so thanks for that. But those are the type of things. And again, that's why I tell people that aren't small business owners, hey, the pricing stays the same. The service is probably maybe not as valuable to somebody who owns an S-corp, a partnership, or a smaller corporation. Right. So that's who we focus on because, again, I, I have a decent understanding of where that part of the tax code exists, the nuances of some of these unique strategies that can, if done correctly, are totally within the realm of the IRC and can derive meaningful benefit and, again, quantifiable dollars to Mr. and Mrs. Client and they're happy about that. So. so so you have this kind of lengthy meeting going through all these different tax strategies. The prospect actually starts tagging which ones they may want to pursue further, right? You know, I, yeah, put my teenager on the payroll. Like that's that sounds neat. I want to look at that further. So so what comes what comes next now in the in the process? Starts to become a parallel process and it's usually at this point if they are a new client, we will ask them, well, how settled do you feel with your tax professional? Are you looking to make a change? If they answer yes, then it's usually, okay, well, let's talk through what that tax engagement looks like while simultaneously, hey, we've got these assets. You've got this trust that's been around for 25 years. We probably need to look at that. You've got all these various old accounts that we need to either consolidate, remove because they're not performing the role that they used to, insurance policies, whatever. That happens in parallel now. So where the planning piece has been tax heavy up to this point, it's basically the sell on, are they going to become a tax preparation client or do they want to engage in ongoing tax planning services, decide if they want to at that point. From there, it's picking up on the wealth management side and really all the other areas of financial planning that really aren't nitty gritty tax. Two questions. One, at what point have they be have they gone from prospect to clients? Because you said like you charge for planning, you you have a strong view about charging for planning. So like, did I already pay for planning like after the very first meeting? Do I get the tax? Do I get the tax analysis and then I decide if I want to do a full financial plan and, and whether I'm gonna pay? Like when when did I actually turn from a prospect into a client who pays? In between the first and the second meeting. So we have that first meeting to get an understanding of who they are and if they're a good fit, right? If if they're a couple W-2 high-income earners, 
probably not going to be able to deliver nearly the value and all these things we've just talked through as somebody who walks in who owns an HVAC company as an S-Corp. So it's at that point that we say, well, we'd love to work with you and kind of present all these different areas and strategies and things. If you're comfortable with it, here's how our planning structure works. So we generally do it based on level of effort. And it's really three tiers, either 2,000, 4,000, or 6,000. We ask for half of it up front, and then we will waive the second half if they move over half a million dollars to us for advisory management. Oftentimes, we waive that second half because they end up deciding they want to work with us. Interesting. And do you tell them like up front, you know, it's going to be $4,000, 2000 is payable now, the other 2000 at the end, but we'll waive it if you, if you end out creating at least a $500,000 relationship with us? Or do you just talk about the planning fee and then like later, later when you're getting to the end of the planning process, you tell them like, Hey, if you decide to work with us, we'll waive that second half payment that's otherwise coming due right now. Good question. We let them know from the beginning. We say- okay. Half's due on engagement, half is due on final delivery. If you choose to work with us, and actually this is in our single page fee schedule that every client gets, or every prospect, excuse me, gets in our first meeting. They get that and a a slew of other one page documents that they hopefully can digest easily. They're able to understand, okay, well, worst case scenario, I'm out $4,000 and maybe I've found my new financial and maybe even tax advisor, and then it only costs me 2000 So psychologically, I mean, we're pricing it like that for a reason, right? There's yep. a little bit of sunk costs, so they have to commit to what takes a good amount of effort on their end to do the planning. Also, they feel like they're getting a deal or a bargain if they ultimately were there and had maybe after the first or second meeting decided they were moving forward. Well, now they're getting some savings and they're excited about that. And what is this, you mentioned a, a single page fee schedule? Just I haven't heard a lot of firms that have created that kind of document. What's the, what's the single page fee schedule? It basically has our AUM tier structure as well as our financial planning overview and some of the deliverables that you receive, as well as kind of the the tiers, the various tiers, the 2,000, 4,000, 6,000, based on level of effort. Interesting. I'm curious, would you be willing to, to share that just for people that want to see, like, what does it look like to present the fees that way? Sure. Yeah, I have no problem with it. All right. Awesome. So for, for those who are listening, this is episode 283. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 283, we'll have a, a copy of Duncan's single page fee schedule to see how that's how that's being presented on the, I guess, the AUM side and the planning side and what you pay and deliverables you get. Yeah, absolutely. So clients now, you have your initial meeting, they decide whether they're going to become at least planning clients. If they say they're going to become planning clients, we get going and loading them into e-money, you get the tax returns, the next meeting you do, the in-depth tax strategies presentation. At that point now, they can decide if they want to work with you on a tax basis, right? Are you settled with your tax professional? Or are you looking to make a change? At the same time, now you're getting deeper into the financial planning process. Like is the next meeting, let's present some of the other financial planning stuff for retirement, education, insurance, et cetera. 
I think we're still at the stage, and this is why it takes a month and a half almost, where we are still getting up to speed and learning, starting to try and digest and maybe start to lay out in the software, you know, the flow of an estate plan or understanding what their objective is. It's actually also the time we start to introduce kind of goals, higher level objectives of what their wealth or their financial picture should do. And we introduced this item that, you know, as far as I know, we're probably, we're the only people that probably call it character insurance, but I'm sure others are doing something along those lines. As we're talking about, you know, well, what does, what, what's the purpose of all this? Where are we, what are we using this wealth or these dollars for? We start to talk through specifically something that I love and I do personally called character insurance. So what is, what is character insurance? <laughs> yeah, of course. Let me just uh, dangle that out there yeah. for a second. It's, it's a process, but it's also psychologically, if they wanted to explain who they were as a person – and their loved ones to know what they stood for and what was important to them, what would they do today if tomorrow wasn't guaranteed? That's essentially what this document and process does. So I've had generally, and I mentioned this to you previously, Michael, this tends to be something that a certain subset of clients focuses on. That subset are younger families with young children or older folks that are in retirement, maybe, quote unquote, in the golden years, facing their own mortality that have grandchildren or children themselves and want to think through, well, purpose, who am I? What is happiness? What is success? So what, what this process does is, one, I kind of explain it just, hey, this is what I do. I bring it up to clients because I think it's important. If you have interest, let's talk more about it, and I'll walk you through how this works. And I don't know if you want me to kind of walk you through the steps quickly on how it yeah, works. Yeah, just what – yeah, please. Sure. Okay. So the way I do it, and there's no perfect way, I, I just say, look – Let's get down to trying to define who we are as a person or how I define myself into a single page. I don't care what it looks like, if it's paragraphs or bullet points, mine's bullet points. But essentially, if you had to sum up what are you, who are you as a person, what do you stand for, try and get that in a page. Really hard to do. That's probably the toughest part of this whole process. I call that the ethos of me. And it's a living document that I look at once a year. I go through, sometimes things change. I mean, COVID showed us how quickly mm. life can change and all of a sudden... Some priorities change. Yep. Priorities change, work changes, everything, right? So this defines who I am. And you know, my first bullet is clear to me because again, this is me in putting in writing who I am. Being a father and husband are my favorite and most important titles. Right. And then I go on to talk through, you know, what happiness means to me and what sacrifice and success at the very, very bottom. I stay, you know, wealth is important. Strive for great wealth in areas of your life because it can it can afford you security, flexibility and duration, not just for status and in, in fact, explicitly not for status. So I guess. If I shared this, some people may see it and 
may not jive with what they believe or who they think, but it, it, it's just me distilling who I am. Okay. From there, you define the people or the loved ones or really just if it's a blank canvas, who would you want to know this about you, right? So for me, it's my children. And why I call it character insurance is I'm well insured. Financially, I know how to look for insurance gaps. I can forecast exactly what my lifetime earnings should be, mortgage, debt, et cetera, and make sure that my wife and children are well cared for, college is covered, et cetera. So I'm, I've got great life insurance. I'm well insured. But what prompted me to do this was how do I guarantee that my young children, who are five, three, and one, know who their father was and what he stood for if I pass suddenly? And that gets me a little mm. choked up, but that to me is really important because all, all the other stuff that I do is great. But again, being a father and husband are my favorite and most important titles. So if I'm not around and my relationships aren't there, which is one of my strongest assets, and I'm not holding my children's hand or picking them up as they're crying, explaining, you know, my life experiences. How could I try and get that to them in some capacity if I'm no longer here? And what I came up with was take the ethos of who I am, take events from the past year, and on their birthday, craft a letter to those children, each one individually, and pick three to four items from my ethos, pick three to four items of topical events in the news. So obviously the last few years we've had tons to discuss and sometimes politics creeps in there. And at the end of the day, it really is, I want my children to hear my voice as they're reading those pages. And I hope I'm around to hand it to them when they're of age to appreciate it. It's just like buying life insurance. You hope you never have to use it. But I've hopefully, and I'm still in the early years of creating this, I'm hopefully protecting that in some way through these letters, if I'm not around, my children would have the ability to know who I was, what I stood for. The final piece of this is I've asked some of my old rugby friends and close acquaintances, my brother, who I trust with my life, that if I'm not around, would they please, at least till my children are of age, have a relationship with my kids and at least once a year, talk with them and explain in their own words who their father was and what he stood for. And I give them access to the letters. It's just a share drive that I upload. And I say, hey, here's where they are, you know, in the event crazy stepfather comes in and doesn't want to hear the name Duncan Kell ever spoken again. At least then I'm also ensuring a little bit against that, that yep. my friends, I've asked them and I know they would do it, would reach out, have a relationship and state in their own words, again, who their father was and they have these letters themselves. So that's what it is. I bring it up. It's powerful to me. Other people who, you know, I think think like I do, get excited about it. And I, I've had a good amount of clients engage with it and move forward with that process as well. I would say, so, so I mean, these steps of trying to define ourselves on the page, writing, like identifying the people, writing the annual letters. So you're, you're, you're taking clients through that process as well. I mean, I understand you've done it for you, but you're, you're taking clients through that process as well. 
No. Those that are engaged in it, I walk them through my process. And essentially, I just tell them, look, here's the purpose of it. It's so my my family knows who I am and what I stood for, even if I'm not around. If you like that idea, take this process. And if you want to talk through it, and I've had multiple clients want to talk through it with me, they usually make it their own. And then it's kind of a, hey, I'm going to give you this thought process. I'm here to talk through my experiences and how I do it. And if you want to talk through annually when we have our meetings, you know, what you've written about or how this has impacted you and financial goals, et cetera, great, let's do it. I let the client bring that up though. Okay. So you're not necessarily like, you haven't made a, I don't know, a, a fillable document, a fillable template, the like, you know, here's the three-step process you go through, but you're talking about what you've done, how you did it, the impact for you and and an opportunity for some clients to be inspired to say like, I like that's powerful. I think I want to do that as well. I'm sure we're going to have a few people who are listening who are going to be do, doing this as well based on, <laughs> on what you shared as well. Would you be comfortable to share like what your one pager looks like for people who just want to like see and visualize more? How does this actually work? Sure. I don't mind. Yeah. All right. So I appreciate that. Uh, so again, this is for those listening, this is episode 283. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 283, we'll have a, a link out for Duncan's ethos of me one page character insurance if you're inspired to want to, I guess, try this with clients or try this for yourself. Yeah. And you know what? If anybody is inspired, you know, send me a tweet or LinkedIn. It'd be fun for me to hear that others are considering it or doing it themselves. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. So like what brings the planning process to a close for you to where you eventually like we've we finished the process, it's time for either second half of the fee or 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 moving into an asset management relationship. Like are you a firm that ultimately builds up to like the plan deliverable that that you provide or or is this more incremental advice along the way? Like how how does how does it conclude after this month to a month and a half process? So we definitely do meet and present an analysis and a deliverable that is a financial plan. But really, I mentioned it previously, a one-page consolidated visual of everything they have laid out. It can get busy. There's a lot of colors going on. But essentially, it's a wheel of risk, and it's setting that infield, outfield lineup. We've got insurance products doing things, and it's showing the taxation of each account and how money flows. Clients seem to like it. So they get that one page deliverable. So is that like a like a one page financial plan? Is that an output from a software tool? Like where did this come from? I created it. We've created this visual and then made sure compliance is comfortable with it. So I guess I got to ask once more just cuz you have all these like really cool one one page things. Like are you up for sharing this one as well? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we'll we'll include a link out. So kitsis.com slash two eight three for I don't I guess I'll call this the one page plan or the one page visual of just how you lay this out. So so do you not even have like, you know, the like the e-money output plan you focus entirely on this one page, or you have the one pager, but then you also have like the longer plan? The one page is built into a custom analysis. And the analysis, uh, I'm coming from my consulting deck days, but basically it encompasses the tax strategy. It encompasses their current retirement situation, their family dynamic, and each 
step of this analysis, again, we built this custom, is presented in a way that delivers an area that I just mentioned. We do offer the e-money physical financial plan because I think we're required to by LPL to be able to charge with advice pay and do planning fees. But really what we sell is, hey, look, this is a snapshot in time. You know better than anybody else. Your life is evolving every day, all the time. This is in the software and we are built to basically be dynamic with this. And the plan is actually the data in the software that we can use, play in the sandbox, model all these scenarios. This is a snapshot in our recommendations. But if you choose to work with us, The financial planning piece doesn't stop, and we use this software when we're making investment decisions, when we're having conversations around restructuring businesses, et cetera. That's really where we try and close everything out is saying, look, this is a living, breathing document. You've paid us for our time to present. Hopefully, you've gotten value. You've gotten these deliverables. But where the real value is, is an ongoing engagement where we're leveraging this living document, so to speak. And using it to make quantifiable statistical decisions in financial and life. So what surprised you the most about this this path of building an advisory business? Well, I mentioned it briefly earlier, and I will mention it again. My partner's my father. And Mm. I came, one, I swore I'd never work with my father and I would never work in this industry. Boy, do we eat words. I was definitely the chip on my shoulder. I'm going to go out and like make it on my own. And I actually, you know what? I guess to my credit, I went out and was pretty darn successful in management consulting. I was doing quite well. I just recognized that 16, 17 hours a day um, flying around and consulting with government entities and corporations, it wasn't the best lifestyle for yeah. family life as well as recognizing that my dad was successful, you know, depending on how you define success, he had time. And to me right now, time is my greatest Mm. asset. So being able to move back into this practice and, you know, partner with my father and ultimately become his succession plan was a mechanism for me to spend more time with my family and control my time while also ultimately when we moved and became independent with LPL, create my own vision, move into you know what I consider the backbone of this country, small business, do it myself, take that entrepreneurial plunge and be able to build a second business that's tax and uh, the way I see it, well integrated into the financial planning services you know, build software as well, pursue items of creativity that can be lucrative or they could be like the book that I wrote that, you know, is a flop and turns out to not be the best. Now I'm curious just to understand further, just the, like the dynamics with your, with your father. So so it's like, like you were, you were in your own career. He, I guess, has already, already been in the industry for a while. So like, how did this work? I mean, do you just call him one day and say like, so I think I might actually want to come into the business after all? Or did he call you and say like, hey, son, like you you should really look at coming into the business. We have much better hours than that management consulting thing you're doing. <laughs> like how did how did that how did that change come about? Like how do you how do you get going down that path if if you were on your own separate track already? 
it was me recognizing the opportunity and asking him, my wife and I, I think we were in, no, we were married at the time. We flew up before we had children and had a conversation, my mother, myself, and my wife about what this might look like. And from there, we decided that it was the right path for me, we, my wife and I, and my father and mother also decided that it was going to work for them. And to my father's credit, I mean, I could have been a total bum. And because I'm his son, he kind of would have been stuck with me. (laughs) Thankfully, it's worked out to, I, you know, two plus two equals seven here. And it's been an extremely additive and beneficial relationship for both of us. But it was a conversation that I brought up to him. I also had to have a conversation with my brother and sister because Mm. I perceived it as, hey, I don't want to be 10 years down the road and hearing from both of you that Duncan took the only opportunity here. And where's my opportunity? You're the eldest. How How come you got it? Fortunately, they're both very successful in their own careers and they have no interest in financial management or tax. So it was kind of up to me. And from there, we formed the partnership that was five years ago and formed our own entity and company two years ago. And it's been great. It really has been pretty much as well as you could script it and craft it. It's kind of how it's turned out. So what what changed from like the partnership five years ago to the entity two years ago? We left a wirehouse. So we joined when I joined my partner, Bruce, he's never dad in these conversations, but Bruce, he was at a wirehouse. And that was an experience. I'll just say that I'm glad I'm currently independent. And there were catalysts for why we went independent, mainly to do with kind of the operations within a wirehouse. Like what was driving you out? Because I'm presuming if he was in a wirehouse, he probably had been there for a while because most, most people who are there are kind of lifers there. So <laughs> what, what changed uh, or, or what, what made it work for him and not work for you? Bruce was an entrepreneur prior to becoming a financial advisor. And like you guessed, he's, he's been in the career for 30 years. 28 years of that has been at wirehouses. Prior to joining the wirehouses, though, he started one of the first brew pubs in Northern California. Man, he was about 15 years too early because he was brewing craft beer back in the 80s. Oh, before, I know, before it was a thing. It didn't work out, but this is a really neat story. He was doing that for a year. He was the proprietor. He put together investors, and it was just not going well. Basically, a parking lot went in across the way and killed his business. He started working at a wirehouse. He's an MBA from Kellogg and very sharp business-wise. So he was doing both. He was trying to start in the industry while also still running a cash-losing business. He went to all his investors and told them, I am going to lose money. We're going out of business. I'm going to sell it. You're going to get a loss. I'm not going to take what I'm owed. I'm going to give you back everything. Me as the sponsor is not going to get anything from this. 
the reputation that that built for him in our community, and it was smaller then, is the reason he was a success in this business. Hmm. They almost uniformly became clients of his in some capacity. He then used it as an opportunity to speak to their suppliers. Most of these gentlemen were most, I mean, they really were all male, but business owners at the time. And he was introduced from them because he chose to take that hit in the short term and ultimately it gave him a 30-year career. He got established in the wirehouses and the more we dug, the more we realized it was really for us, it scratched his entrepreneurial side that hadn't been around since the 80s or 90s. And for me, I've always dreamed about it and knew that I would never last longer than I did at a wirehouse. Right. Well, because again, when you like doing things like, hey, I made a tax practice on the side and I wrote a and I wrote a book because it seemed interesting, like things that are not easy to do at a wirehouse. I mean, there's other there's other benefits you get for a very large platform and brand, but like being creative is not usually as well rewarded in a very large firm environment like that. No, and that that's exactly the reason why. And for me it's tough because I see you know, I don't know if listeners or you know who James Clear is, but I'm a big – he's Atomic Habits. I'm a big proponent of explore, 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 exploit. So I love the idea of let's try some things. And if it's driving intellectual stimulation and I'm excited about it, awesome. Mm. And maybe it results in business. But I'm not doing it explicitly to try and drive business. That's kind of how the tax – practice has evolved and came about. I liked tax planning. Because of that, I started to learn more, get licensed, do these strategies. Okay, well, let's start a tax firm. It's resulting in positive. So that was, let's explore tax. I'm interested in tax. Okay, there's something here. Let's start to try and exploit this opportunity. That doesn't exist at a wirehouse. It's, we've got the solutions. No out-of-the-box thinking because we might get sued because of your out-of-the-box thinking. So please right. go back to using our tools. And so I think you'd said you 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 landed at LPL. So why why LPL? I'm sure you ended up looking at a lot of different <laughs> broker dealers if you were making a switch. Yeah, we didn't we didn't take the due diligence process lightly. And you know, again, to Bruce's credit. I'm super lucky to be in the situation that I am and have the partner that I do because I walked into his office and said, I can't work here anymore. And unless we have a solution relatively soon, I'm no longer going to be your succession plan. So you essentially gave him an ultimatum of, hey, I'm coming into the business, but if we're going to do the succession thing, it can't be at a wirehouse here? Yeah. And geez, does that sound... (laughs) tough to be granted this great opportunity and then basically say, no, sorry, not going to happen here. We got to do this. And these 28 years that you've been here, no, we got to shift that too. And I guess I'm just wondering now, as you're living this succession plan, you know, and, and as you said, like he's, he's not dad, he's Bruce. So I guess just like, how does that work in, in meetings in the firm? Like, do you, do you tell clients it's a father son relationship? Do you not like you say Bruce, but you also acknowledge like our last names being the same is not a coincidence. Like just how is that working for you? How do you talk through the family dynamics? 
That's a great question. And I think it depends on who's sitting in front of us. He is always Bruce, no matter what, in any of the conversations we're having in business. And we actually say that to the client or to the prospect. We are a father-son team. There's certain dynamics and positives that come from that, but you will never hear us other than just mentioning that, refer to each other as anything but Duncan and Bruce. We also treat things pretty strictly business. We have a buy-sell agreement. We have written legal agreements on how each entity needs to perform and do certain things. Probably most father and son teams don't have that. But again, maybe it's, I think it's both of us. One, it, it defines that, hey, this is a business of family, not a family business. And mm-hmm. it also, for me, I struggle a lot with the nepotism and you've been given all this. That's why I work as hard as I do or, you know, as hard as I think I do to try and be creative, think outside the box, add value in different areas, come up with new benefits to our existing clients on why they should be working with us, diversify even away from the things Bruce is an expert at to truly try and, hey, this is additive. You're getting multiple benefits. I'm not just the sun showing up type of thing. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Honestly, it sounds terrible to say it, but I was really just miserable doing exactly what I'm doing at my job at the wirehouse. I felt like I took a massive step backwards, which I did. I took a huge salary cut leaving management consulting, knowing and hoping that it was betting on myself and Bruce and myself to be two plus two equals greater than four. And fortunately now, you know, five years into the future, that looks to be true and the case. And, you know, we've been independent now for a couple of years. We serve almost the exact same clients, the same people. They joined us and came with us pretty quickly. I've never been happier. I mean, I I think I told you before we started going here, I woke up at 3 a.m. this morning, so excited to get into work. And I mean, yeah, there's a lot of volatility happening and there's tough conversations and the the business return deadlines in five days. There's a lot going on on my plate, but I wake up so energized and excited and just, it was just the inverse. I, I had a, I had a really bad panic attack actually. And that was the next day I walked into Bruce's office and said, I, I think I actually said dad, which I shouldn't have done, but I said, dad, I can't be your succession plan. I mean, I'm having anxiety every day. I'm having a panic attack. I'm miserable here. We either need to try and find a different solution or I can go back to consulting and that's okay too. What was so bad that it was to the point of triggering panic attacks for you? The culture of no was what was really tough for me. I was rewarded strongly with compensation and promotions, thinking outside of the box, going, consulting is just a different business, I guess. And what I was tasked to do was take a team into different organizations, find opportunities, fire people and change things up, be creative, right? And it was such a culture of, no, don't do that. No, you can't do that perfect example was I got really excited about a specific part of the tax code that happened with 
2017, Opportunity Zones. And I was jazzed and looking forward to it. And I wanted to release, you know, some commentary about it, like write a blog and just send it to our clients. And I spent hours and said, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be, you know, value add to them. We're bringing a new perspective, letting them know about this new opportunity. And it didn't even make it out the door. And I told not to do it again. And, you know, I, I tried some other things. People wanted to talk about Bitcoin. Okay, well, rather than saying we can't talk about it, could I craft something that maybe talks about cryptocurrencies and our opinion about it? And the answer was just no. And it was, I started keeping a list and I probably shouldn't have. It's probably what provoked the anxiety, but it was on the high 20s of no, 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 where I'm sitting here just going, well, I've looked at the FINRA rules. This isn't in there. This is just a corporate policy. And it just wasn't a fit for me. Like you said earlier, it's a perfect fit for a lot of folks that the brand brings a lot or there's banking or other services that they provide. I just love being independent. I like being able to think creatively, stand up opportunities, go find software that works for our clients and start leveraging it and build a business for our clients, not use a turnkey solution. So I guess my biggest issue was I like to try and be creative and I like owning things and being being the owner. And that just wasn't really possible in a wirehouse environment. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you five plus years ago when you were just, just getting started to make the transition into the business? It was a tough mental challenge for me. And I'm big on mental toughness and all sorts of things from my Olympic days. But taking such a step backwards, I mean, I was doing quite well in management consulting. I was getting promoted often and getting paid a lot. You know, I'm we're doing better now and that's great. But to step back into an entry-level position where I mm. was just the rookie and people are calling me rookies and I was leading a team two months before this. Boy, that was, that was hard to stomach. And it took a lot of, okay, well, long-term, this is going to be all right. Just keep, you know, get down the learning curve twice as fast, figure out ways to add value, all these things. And it, it probably pressured me into, you know, trying to think outside of the box because I needed to offer some value other than just being, you know, Bruce's son and Bruce is getting old. That was really tough for me though, to go from, I guess, having standing and status and doing well in a career to basically being just like I was starting a job for the very first time. So what, like what gets you through? Tenacity. I mean, at the end of the day, it's okay. Well, I'm going to get down this learning curve as fast, if not faster than anybody before. I'm going to look for opportunities. I'm going to start to learn things that these folks that are in these corner offices don't know about and are of interest to the people that they serve. Opportunity Zones is a good example of that. That's a high net worth interest that, you know, okay, you have a really close understanding of something like that. People might want to know that. Okay, that's value add. So it was, to me, understanding this is 
a decision collectively made by my wife and I. We knew it was going to be tough. Didn't I honestly didn't think it was going to be as hard as it was. And I really had to fall back on, we haven't really got into this, but I used to play rugby on the um, Olympic rugby team for a few years. And that's just basically a master's in mental toughness and um, long-term planning and goal setting and basically grinding and grinding and grinding. And usually we were getting crushed by New Zealand and Australia. So how to lose gracefully too. I really had to fall back on that longer term mindset and trust myself that I was going to be able to ultimately turn this into the right decision. It's so easy to sit here now and say, oh God, yeah, what an easy decision. It was a year of toughness and pain and getting treated like a rookie where you're getting paid a fifth as much as you were or half as much as you were, whatever it is. It's, you know, it's the Monday morning quarterback bias just on your own success in life. And I, it was tough for me. And the more I think about it, the more it really was a challenge to kind of get through that tough first step. And we almost pulled the eject button twice and mm. just said, you know what? We tried it. It just didn't work. And thank goodness we didn't and stuck it out because ultimately it's turned into a career I love in a capacity that I love where I work for myself and with a family member and we're building our own success and we dictate outcome for ourselves. Some people fear that. I personally love it. It just took some tough times to get through and land ultimately where we did. So what advice would you give other younger, newer advisors that are, are coming in the industry and getting started? I think looking for areas that people you want to work with have interest in that other advisors are prevented from talking about if they're at certain companies, mm. don't have the knowledge about or don't have the time or interest. It's pretty easy, Michael, you know, to get complacent in this industry, recurring revenue. You've got certain clients that they don't expect to call more than once a year sometimes. And, you know, oh, yeah. hey, we did this rebalance. And you're still getting, you know, thousands of dollars sometimes. What I mean, I got asked at LPL's Focus, what in God's name do you want to own a tax business for? They don't get paid recurring revenue. We do. They get questioned on their fees all the time. You generally don't because it's taken out of the accounts. Why do you want to own a tax business? And I mean, that's just perspective, right? That's somebody sitting there going, God, I would never in a million years want to spend and trudge through that to to try and benefit on this side because I've got this base of clients. I get two to three referrals a year. I have a nice right. living. I'm comfortable. So, I mean, what I would tell people in my situation or people trying to grow their businesses, look for areas to exploit where the people have gotten fat and happy. And there's plenty of them, as you well know. So this is a podcast about success. And one of the themes always comes up is just the word success means very different things to different people. And so as you're on this path to success now, building the firm, having you know followed your path of success in, in management consulting, how do you define success for yourself at this point? It's a great question. And I probably don't define it like a lot of people do. I think success is when you look at all you've accomplished in life and you're able to just smile. And it doesn't matter how small or really how big that accomplishment is. 
being happy with what you've done is success. There's a reason the man in the arena quote by Theodore Roosevelt is my favorite and hangs in my office. It's those that try and can be happy with the fact that they went out there and tried. To me, that's the definition of success. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Duncan, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it and it was a privilege to be here. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.